You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. Thanks for tuning in to the 103rd episode of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello, y'all. Welcome to the podcast. When we left off last time, it was early March 1862, and the Confederate Army, led by Earl Van Dorn, had set out from its winter camps in the Boston Mountains to attack the Federal force that had advanced down from Missouri and invaded northwest Arkansas. Through the opening flurries of a snowstorm, the rebels had set out on March 4th on a grueling march that Van Dorn hoped would end with the destruction of half of the Union Army encamped around Bentonville. But two days later, on March 6th, that endangered portion of the Union Army, led by Franz Siegel, managed to slip away from Bentonville and escape Van Dorn's trap. And so Samuel Curtis, the overall commander of the Federal Army, then successfully managed to concentrate his hitherto widely dispersed forces at Little Sugar Creek, a strong defensive position along the Telegraph Road. There he awaited the Confederates' next move. On the evening of March 6th, Van Dorn held an officers' meeting to discuss the situation. Ben McCulloch advised against attacking the enemy now entrenched at Little Sugar Creek, but said he knew of a way to maneuver the Federals out of their strong defensive position. McCulloch said that the Confederates could use a roundabout route, known as the Bentonville Detour, to outflank the Federals and force them to abandon the Little Sugar Creek position and fall back into Missouri. But armed with McCulloch's information, Van Dorn decided he wanted to do more than just maneuver the enemy out of their defensive position. He decided that using the Bentonville Detour, the Confederates would make a rapid march to get all the way to the Telegraph Road in the Federal rear, thereby cutting Curtis's line of communication and supply line back to Missouri, forcing him to either fight and be destroyed or to surrender his entire army to Van Dorn. Once Van Dorn set his mind on that plan, he decided to move out at once. Ben McCulloch was shocked that Van Dorn would order the exhausted men and animals to set out immediately, since most of them had covered more than 50 miles in freezing weather during the past 60 hours. McCulloch urged Van Dorn to at least let the army rest overnight and march in the morning, but Van Dorn insisted that the men start out on the Bentonville detour immediately. And so at 8 p.m. on the evening of Thursday, March 6, the cold, hungry, and tired Confederates were on the move again. Van Dorn, a cavalryman at heart, was pushing his army hard, acting as if it were a cavalry troop he could order hither and yon across the countryside. 
Remember, he had arrived at the Army's camps in the Boston Mountains with just two staff officers, and, instead of taking some time to familiarize himself with the strengths and weakness of his, of his new command, he had ordered McCulloch's and Price's men to set out the very next day. That march north was made in horrendous weather, and Van Dorn's orders made the trek even more miserable, since he wanted the army to travel fast and light leaving the supply train, with tents, baggage, provisions, and extra ammunition, to keep up as best it could. But in neglecting the vital logistics that would support his advance, Van Dorn was again acting as if he were commanding a cavalry troop on the frontier instead of an army. Another critical mistake Van Dorn made can also be traced back to his experiences on the Texas frontier, fighting Indians, where a cavalry commander's greatest concern was catching a band of Comanches before they could flee and escape. But the Federal Army in northwest Arkansas was not a band of Indians, and Samuel Curtis was not thinking of flight, but preparing for a fight. In a letter written after the Battle of Pea Ridge, one of the Confederate officers said, quote, The truth of the whole matter was General Van Dorn did not believe the Federals would fight him, but rather that they would get away from him, end quote. So what we're getting at is that Van Dorn's missteps in not taking the time to familiarize himself with his new command, in neglecting vital logistical considerations, in disregarding the hunger and exhaustion of the Army's men and animals, in misreading Curtis's intentions, Van Dorn's critical mistakes were putting the Confederate Army at a severe disadvantage even before it came to grips with the main Federal force. And so, as the cold, hungry, and tired Confederates were falling in and setting out once again on the evening of March 6th, it only remained to be seen if the incredible stamina and courage of the rank-and-file Southern soldier could make up for Earl Van Dorn's incompetence. The Confederate flanking march on the Bentonville detour quickly turned into a miserable ordeal for all those involved, except for Earl Van Dorn, who once again elected to ride in an ambulance due to his illness. According to James R. Knight in his book, The Battle of Pea Ridge, The Civil War Fight in the Ozarks, quote, The night march around the Federal position was simply brutal for the Confederate Army. All along the detour, men were falling out of ranks, sometimes whole companies, and lying exhausted and asleep by the side of the road in freezing temperatures. The bill for the forced marches and short rations of the past few days was coming due. It is one of the enduring ironies of the Pea Ridge campaign that General Earl Van Dorn, by insisting on the killing pace of the advance to the battlefield, almost certainly created as many casualties among his own men as the Federal Army would inflict in almost two days of battle. End quote. The Confederates' miserable march was made even more challenging by the efforts of the Federals to hinder their advance. You see, Curtis knew about the Bentonville detour, and so, when Colonel Grenville Dodge of the 4th Iowa came to the Federal headquarters on the evening of March 6th and suggested that, just as a preventative measure, something be done to obstruct the detour, Curtis thought it a capital idea and ordered Dodge to go out and get to work. And so the men of the 4th Iowa marched out on the Bentonville detour, traveling in the opposite direction from the advancing rebels, and created two roadblocks by cutting down trees across the road. 
They were done with their job and gone before the Confederates arrived at the spots, but their efforts succeeded in delaying Van Dort's advance for several hours. And just to be clear, neither Curtis nor Dodge knew that the rebels were going to make use of the Bentonville detour. The creation of the obstacles along the route was just a precautionary measure to guard the Federals' right flank, that is to protect the right flank of their defensive position at Little Sugar Creek. Right. So anyway, because of the slow pace of the march and because of the 4th Iowa's obstructions, it was after dawn on the morning of Friday, March 7th, before the lead elements of the Confederate column reached the Telegraph Road in the Federal rear. At that point, Van Dorn roused himself from his ambulance and mounted his horse to lead his men. But he then realized that although he seemed to have achieved surprise in reaching the Federal rear, that by the time all of his army came up on the detour, unfortunately, most of the day would have passed. And so Van Dorn made a decision that would eventually lead to disaster for him and for his army. He decided to divide his force and have Ben McCulloch turn off the detour onto a small country lane called Ford Road. McCulloch had been bringing up the rear of the column with his Confederate infantry and Albert Pike's Indians. Using the Ford Road would get McCulloch off the detour and shorten his division's march. Meanwhile, Van Dorn and Sterling Price's Missourians would stick with the original plan and use the Telegraph Road to push south into the Federal rear. When the Federal commander, Samuel Curtis, had concentrated his army at Little Sugar Creek, he had posted a detachment in his rear at Elkhorn Tavern. That detachment, commanded by Major Eli Weston, consisted of six companies of the 24th Missouri and two companies of cavalry. Weston was the provost marshal of Curtis's army, and so was responsible for the security of prisoners, the supply wagons, and the army's rear areas. On the night of the 6th, Weston had taken the precaution of posting pickets out along the three roads that intersected at or near Elkhorn Tavern, and by sunrise on Friday the 7th, Weston was receiving reports from his pickets that Confederates were moving on the Telegraph Road north of his position and also on the Ford Road in the area of Little Mountain to the west of his position. After getting those disturbing reports, Weston sent additional troops out to strengthen his pickets. The Confederates, cautiously working their way south on the Telegraph Road, met the first real resistance to their advance about three-fourths of a mile north of Elkhorn Tavern. There, some rebel horsemen ran into infantry of Company B of Weston's 24th Missouri. And so by 8 a.m. on Friday morning, Samuel Curtis was starting to receive news from his rear, from Elkhorn Tavern, that Confederates were moving on both the Telegraph Road and Ford Road. In response to this information, the federal commander called for an officer's meeting at 9 a.m. While Curtis waited for his officers to arrive, he tried to fathom what the enemy might be up to. He was inclined to believe that the Confederates behind him to the north on the Telegraph Road were a diversion. He believed, though, that the reported enemy force on the Ford Road might be a real threat to the right flank of the Federal position along Little Sugar Creek. And so once the officers' meeting got started, Curtis ordered that a division-sized force under Colonel Peter Osterhaus be sent to counter that threat. The force would march from the Little Sugar Creek position, advance through the tiny hamlet of Leetown, and on toward a place called Twelve Corner Church, and engage any enemy forces in the area. 
Having taken that step to protect his right flank, Curtis was surprised to then receive another report from Weston at Elkhorn Tavern, saying that the rebels north of the tavern, along the Telegraph Road, were growing stronger and more aggressive with each passing minute. Weston said that if the position around the tavern were to be held, he needed help, and very soon. So, just to break into the flow of the action here, but it's important to understand that from this point on, for the rest of Friday, March 7th, the Battle of Pea Ridge really consisted of two quite separate actions fought about two miles apart. One of those actions was around Elkhorn Tavern, and the other was west of the tavern near the small village of Leetown. For several hours during the 7th, both fights were going on at the same time, out of sight but within hearing of each other. And so as we go forward, just keep that in mind, that you have the Federals' main position along the Telegraph Road at Little Sugar Creek, where they're facing south, because that's the direction the rebels will come from, right? Well, it would be, except Van Dorn has used the Bentonville detour to get half his army to the Telegraph Road, directly in the Federals' rear, behind Elkhorn Tavern. But because it was taking so much time to use the detour, Van Dorn has also decided to peel off the other half of his army, and led by Ben McCulloch, that force is using the Ford Road to come in behind the Federals' right flank. So on Friday the 7th, the first day of the Battle of Pea Ridge, you've got two fights. One fight is directly in the Federals' rear at Elkhorn Tavern, and another fight is two miles to the west of the tavern, over behind the Federals' right flank, near Leetown. After receiving Weston's message about the Confederates that were pressing him at Elkhorn Tavern, Samuel Curtis stepped outside of his headquarters tent and was surprised to see a large body of troops drawn up nearby. The men were Colonel Grenville Dodge's brigade. You see, after he'd finished building those roadblocks along the Bentonville detour, Dodge was convinced there was a real threat to the Federal Army's rear, so on his own initiative, he pulled his brigade out of the Little Sugar Creek defensive position and marched them a mile or so toward the Army's rear. Dodge's move was quite bold, and he probably would have been reprimanded for it, except for the fact that when Curtis stepped out of his headquarters tent that morning, finding Dodge's troops drawn up nearby was actually an answered prayer for the Federal commander. Curtis quickly ordered Colonel Eugene Carr, Dodge's division commander, to take the brigade to Elkhorn Tavern and assume command there. Meanwhile, back at Elkhorn Tavern, Major Weston had been using his small force to hold off the Confederates as best he could for almost three hours. So when Carr and Dodge arrived at the tavern with 1,250 men and a six-gun battery of artillery, Weston breathed a sigh of relief. After arriving at the tavern with Dodge's brigade, Carr quickly realized that he had his work cut out for him. When Curtis had sent him off, Curtis had assumed the Confederates at Outcorn Tavern were just a diversionary force. But after arriving on the scene and sizing up the situation for himself, Carr wasn't so sure. Carr set up his artillery to command the Telegraph Road, where it descended into Cross Timber Hollow, just north of the tavern. But he could see that sizable bodies of enemy infantry were moving south in the woods on both sides of the road. The Federal artillery opened fire on the rebels and stopped their advance, but then some Confederate guns were brought up and started to duel with a Yankee cannon. 
Once the rebel artillery opened fire, Carr was convinced this was more than just a diversion, so he sent a messenger to Curtis asking for reinforcements. As the opposing cannon thundered at one another, the Confederate infantry started to work their way forward once again along both sides of the Telegraph Road, and it wasn't long before Carr's position in Cross Timber Hollow became untenable. In the midst of this, Curtis showed up, and after quickly assessing the situation and conferring with Carr, the Federal commander went off to send more reinforcements to Elkhorn Tavern. By about half-past noon, all but one of Carr's guns had been knocked out, and he was forced to fall back out of Cross Timber Hollow into the tavern. There, a battery of Iowa artillery arrived and went into action just ahead of the arrival of the rest of Carr's division, a brigade of Iowans and Missourians led by Colonel William Vandiver. With the arrival of the federal reinforcements, there was a lull in the fighting. That lull in the fighting at Elkhorn Tavern was due to the fact that, by noon, Van Dorn had most of Sterling Price's men on the field, but he was finding it was devilishly difficult to move troops and artillery through the woods and brush and up and down the hillsides north of Elkhorn Tavern. Even apart from the Federal resistance, such movement was difficult and time-consuming, and Van Dorn and Price found that coordinating the movements of the various rebel units was next to impossible. Van Dorn was also expecting at any moment to hear the sound of battle off to the west, where Ben McCulloch's force was supposed to be coming in behind the Federals' right flank. And so for the time being, during the lull in the fighting at Elkhorn Tavern, Van Dorn was content to simply work at positioning Sterling Price's men for the upcoming all-out assault on the tavern that, along with McCulloch's attack to the west, would crush the Federal Army. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We're going to leave the situation at Elkhorn Tavern in the Federal's rear as it is for now, and for the next while, we'll focus our attention on what's happening about two miles to the west, near Leetown, where Ben McCulloch was using the Ford Road to get behind the Union right flank. 
As you guys will recall, Curtis had ordered that a division-sized force under Colonel Peter Osterhaus be sent to counter the threat to the Federal Army's right flank. Osterhaus's force was to march over there from the Little Sugar Creek position, advance through the tiny hamlet of Leetown, and on toward a place called Twelve Corner Church, and engage any enemy forces in the area. By 11.30 a.m., Osterhaus's operation was well underway. By that time, the head of his column was already north of Leetown, and since he still knew nothing, really, about the supposed rebel force he was supposed to find somewhere ahead, Osterhaus decided to go on ahead with a detachment of cavalry and scout toward Twelve Corner Church. Before setting off with the 600 or so cavalry and a battery of three guns, Osterhaus directed that the Federal infantry be deployed along the south side of a large open field on the west side of the Leetown Road. That field, known as Oberson's Field, was the best defensive position around, and Osterhaus thought it prudent to deploy his infantry there until he had a better idea of what was in front of him. So in your mind's eye, picture the north-south running Leetown Road, and Osterhaus's force is advancing up that road, not entirely certain what is ahead of them, just knowing there is supposed to be a rebel force to their front somewhere, a rebel force that, if it is there, would be a threat to the Federal Army's right flank. So Osterhaus has reached a spot on the Leetown Road where there's a large open field, Oberson's Field, and beyond that spot, on the north side of the field, there's a band of trees and brush blocking his view toward Twelve Corner Church. Osterhaus orders that as his infantry come up, they are to be deployed on the south side of Oberson's Field, while he goes on ahead with some cavalry to see what's up. And so, as Osterhaus and his small force of cavalry go through that band of trees and brush and emerge on the other side, the sight before them takes their breath away, for there in front of them is the east-west running Ford Road, and on the Ford Road, marching from left to right, they see Ben McCulloch's entire 7,000-strong division of Confederates. Osterhaus immediately realized that the head of the enemy column must only be about a mile from the fields where the Federal Army's supply train was parked, as well as where Samuel Curtis's headquarters were located. Osterhaus knew he had to take action, and quickly, or the rebels would be in position to roll up the Union Army's right flank. As he later said in his official report, quote, Notwithstanding my command was entirely inadequate to the overwhelming masses opposed to me, I could not hesitate in my course of action. The safety of our position was dependent upon the securing of our right flank and the keeping back of the enemy until I was reinforced. End quote. And so, despite the daunting odds facing him, Osterhaus ordered the three James rifles of Captain G.M. Elbert's 1st Missouri Flying Battery to unlimber and open fire on the rebels marching along the Ford Road. The first volley from Elbert's three James rifles caught the Confederates completely by surprise. For a few moments, all was confusion in the rebel column, but then the leading Confederate infantry, a brigade led by Louis Hebert, continued moving quickly down the Ford Road to some woods ahead. Meanwhile, James McIntosh's rebel cavalry, which had been traveling alongside the Confederate infantry, simply wheeled around to face the Yankee guns. 
As the Texas battery unlimbered and started to duel with the Yankee guns, McCulloch ordered McIntosh to lead his mounted troops in a charge on the enemy cannon and their cavalry supports. Wasting little time, McIntosh quickly had about 3,000 Texans and Arkansans charging the 600 or so Federals across the way. Elbert's gunners frantically managed to get off a few more shots, but then the mass of rebel horsemen enveloped the small Federal battery. A trooper of the 3rd Iowa Cavalry, which was supporting Elbert's guns, survived the ensuing swirling chaos and later tried to describe what had happened, writing, quote, I have read in history of and seen depicted the horrors of battle, where foe measured arms with foe in mortal combat, but here my own eyes witnessed them. In every direction I could see my comrades falling. Men and horses ran in collision, crushing each other to the ground. Officers tried to rally their men, but order gave way to confusion. The scene baffles description. End quote. In his book on the Battle of Pea Ridge, James R. Knight describes what happened to Companies A and B of the 3rd Iowa Cavalry when, just before the Confederate charge, Colonel Osterhaus sent them up a farm lane, Foster Lane, to attack the rear of the rebel column. Knight writes, quote, They were about 300 yards to the northwest and escaped the main assault, only to run head-on into Albert Pike's Creek and Cherokee troops, who were trailing the column. In what was surely one of the most bizarre scenes in the Civil War, almost 1,000 mounted and dismounted Indians came screaming out of the woods and swept over the two small companies of Iowa cavalry. Their colonel was wounded and many other saddles emptied, and soon the rest of the Yankee troopers were in flight back up Foster Lane, all except one. In the middle of the melee, Private Albert Powers wheeled his mount, rode back into the fight, picked up a dismounted trooper, and carried him safely back. For this, Powers would be awarded the Medal of Honor. During the fight, a few of the Indians fell back into some of their old habits. After the battle, Federal soldiers would discover that several of the 3rd Iowa casualties had been scalped and mutilated. End quote. While that unfortunate incident was taking place, the Confederates' main assault rolled over the three Yankee guns, and Colonel Osterhaus and the vastly outnumbered Federal cavalry retreated pell-mell back to the south, toward Oberson's Field, where the Union infantry, under Colonel Nicholas Grusel, were still filing into place. Somehow, Grusel managed to hold his infantry steady at the south edge of Oberson's Field and keep them from panicking as wild-eyed Federal cavalrymen and riderless horses stampeded down from the north. Once the stampede had passed, Grusel calmly continued positioning his men at the south edge of Oberson's Field. Once the Confederate charge was over, most of McIntosh's rebel horsemen and Pike's Indians swarmed excitedly around the captured Yankee cannon, celebrating their victory, but a few Southerners managed to keep their heads and pursued the fleeing Yankee cavalry. That was how Major Saul Ross and some of his men from the 6th Texas rode after the panicked enemy and soon came to the south edge of that band of timber and brush that bordered Oberson's Field. Across the way, Ross could see what looked like several thousand Yankee infantry and artillery drawn up at the south edge of the large open field. The Yankees also saw Ross and his small group of horsemen, and a few of Grusel's guns lobbed some shells toward the Texans. At that, the Texans fell back into the trees, 
and within minutes, Major Ross had a messenger riding back to tell Ben McCulloch what he had seen. When Major Ross's report reached McCulloch, the Confederate general realized that the pesky Federal detachment that had attacked him wasn't just a small scouting party. It was actually part of a much larger Yankee force. And now that he knew that, McCulloch realized he couldn't continue on with his march, since it would be extremely foolhardy to leave a large Federal force in his rear. So McCulloch called for a meeting with his two senior subordinates, James McIntosh and Louis Hebert. At the same time, he ordered the Confederate infantry to form up. While the Confederate infantry was getting organized and McCulloch was meeting with his lieutenants, across the way, Colonel Osterhaus realized that now that he had poked the hornet's nest, his problem would be to hold on until reinforcements could arrive. At the present moment, he had nine pieces of artillery, about 1,600 infantry, plus the shattered remnants of his cavalry. Against him, the rebels looked to have about 4,000 infantry and that many or more horsemen. Osterhaus sent a courier racing to find Curtis with report of his encounter with a rebel division that had been marching down the Ford Road and asking for assistance as soon as possible. As the Confederate infantry moved off the Ford Road and formed up facing south, McCulloch explained his plan to McIntosh and Hebert. West of the Leetown Road, McCulloch would personally lead the 16th and 17th Arkansas, the 1st and 2nd Arkansas Mounted Rifles, and the 4th Texas Cavalry. To the east of the Leetown Road, in the area known locally as Morgan's Woods, a bear would command the 3rd Louisiana and the 4th, 14th, and 15th Arkansas. Since a bear wouldn't be able to actually see McCulloch's force, he was simply to wait until he heard the battle commence on the other side of the road and then start his own advance through Morgan's Woods. And then finally, behind the front line, McIntosh would have four cavalry regiments, and then behind McIntosh, Pikes, Creeks, and Cherokees formed up. While the Confederates were getting themselves organized for their attack, the Federals were getting ready to meet the assault. Colonel Grusel decided to send the 36th Illinois into Oberson's Field, and two companies of the regiment, acting as skirmishers, advanced all the way to the fence line on the north edge of the large open field. As the two companies of the 36th Illinois went into position along the fence line, it was about 1.30 in the afternoon, and Ben McCulloch was just about to launch his big attack. As the Confederate general prepared to launch his assault, he rode to the far right of his line, to the position held by the 16th Arkansas. McCulloch told the 16th's colonel that he was going to ride ahead and a bit further to the right in order to get a closer look at the Federal line for himself. As Knight points out, quote, Ben McCulloch had been a soldier and Indian fighter for 25 years. He had fought with Sam Houston, scouted for the Army during the Mexican-American War, and fought Indians as a Texas Ranger. Doing his own reconnaissance was an old habit that hadn't changed since he had become a general. He had done what he was about to do a hundred times before. End quote. McCulloch told his staff to stay back, and he rode forward alone. Unknown to him, or to any of the other Confederates, though, the skirmishers from the 36th Illinois had advanced to the fence line at the north edge of Oberson's Field, and so when Ben McCulloch rode forward alone, he was only 70 yards from the Yankees. 
Sitting on his horse and outlined against the sky, McCulloch made a perfect target, and the crackle of a dozen muskets firing echoed through the frozen landscape. McCulloch toppled to the ground, killed instantly by a bullet through the heart. His wounded horse itself hit four times, fled the scene. Because of the trees and brush, no one in the rebel line saw McCulloch fall, but when the 16th Arkansas advanced a few moments later, they found their general sprawled lifelessly on the ground. A messenger went to tell McIntosh that he was now in command of the division. When the messenger found McIntosh, the new commander didn't immediately order the general advance that had been planned. Instead, for some unknown reason, he went ahead with only his old regiment, the 2nd Arkansas Mounted Rifles. As McIntosh and the Arkansans emerged from the trees and moved into Oberson's field, they were immediately taken under fire by the Federals, and the rebels on this part of the battlefield lost their second commander within a span of minutes. With both Generals McCulloch and McIntosh dead, the regimental commanders of the Confederate force west of the Leetown Road decided to fall back and wait for new orders. Those orders, though, would never come. That was because command of the division now passed to Colonel Louis A. Bear, but he was out of contact over in Morgan's Woods, to the east of the Leetown Road. Having heard firing to his right, he had assumed the big attack was underway, and so he had started to advance his four regiments south through the woods. A Bear would fight the rest of the day without ever realizing that McCulloch and McIntosh were dead and that he was the senior surviving officer on this part of the battlefield. All of the Confederates west of the Leetown Road had fallen back, waiting for new orders that would never come. But east of the road, in Morgan's Woods, Hebert's four rebel regiments were advancing toward the unsupported right flank of Osterhaus's position. Unknown to Osterhaus or Hebert, though, Federal reinforcements were on their way to the scene. That was because Samuel Curtis had ordered Colonel Jefferson C. Davis to take most of his division to Osterhaus's aid. In the dense scrub oak and brush in Morgan's woods, a bear had a difficult time keeping his rebel regiments in line, and he called several halts to try and keep his men in some sort of order. The time it took a bear to move through Morgan's woods gave Colonel Davis just enough time to arrive and shore up Osterhaus's right flank. Davis's Federals and a bear's Confederates then engaged in a brutal close-up fight through the dense thickets in Morgan's woods. The combatants flailed away at one another through the underbrush and timber for almost an hour before rebel numbers slowly forced the Yankees to fall back. Finally, about 3 p.m., Davis ordered his battered regiments to withdraw from the woods and back into Oberson's field. As Hebert's Confederates poured out of the woods and into the open, they were taken under fire by Federal artillery. The rebels charged toward the Yankee batteries, and, for a few moments, pandemonium reigned as Confederates overran to the cannon. Now was the time for the Confederates west of the Leetown Road to join the attack, but with McCulloch and McIntosh down, five Arkansas, six Texas, and two Indian regiments stood idle while Hebert's men battled half a mile away. And so, without any kind of supporting attack by their comrades west of the Leetown Road, Hebert's rebels soon had to fall back from Oberson's field and back into the woods, and so, because of the fog of battle, a golden opportunity was lost by the Confederates. 
With the repulse of Hebert's attack and his retreat back into Morgan's woods, the fighting on this part of the field effectively ended, and although the Federals didn't know it yet, the Battle of Pea Ridge was half won. That's because as the survivors of the fight in Morgan's woods retreated, the remnants of Ben McCulloch's once-proud division fragmented and marched away in several different directions. And so, except for a few isolated units, half of Earl Van Dorn's army was already beaten. Around Elkhorn Tavern, though, the fighting was far from over. And that's where we'll leave things for this week. Next week, we'll head back over to Elkhorn Tavern and pick back up with the action there, as Earl Van Dorn and Sterling Price try to engineer a victory, even as Samuel Curtis attempts to turn his army completely around to face the growing threat to his rear. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is Ben McCulloch and the Frontier Military Tradition by Thomas W. Kutcher. If you're interested in reading about Ben McCulloch and learning more about his really interesting life, which came to a tragic end here at Pea Ridge, then we highly recommend Kutcher's biography. As always, you can find Ben McCulloch and the Frontier Military Tradition and all of our recommendations by going to the podcast website, www.civilwarpodcast.org, and clicking on the header menu where it says Book Recommendations. And then we wanted to be sure to thank all of y'all for your patience waiting for this episode. We took a break for the holidays, but then Rich got sick, so that's why we haven't done a show for a while. Yeah, after New Year's, I got a bad cough and lost my voice. And since this is an audio podcast, that posed a bit of a problem. But now it looks like we're back on track. We released the third members episode yesterday and have this show out to you guys today. So I think now we're running on all eight cylinders again. And speaking of the newest members episode, we have quite a few new members of the Strawfoot Brigade to thank for their support like Norm, Charles, Lars, and William. And David, Stephen, Richard, Jeff, and Jillian. And Peg, Brad, Dan, Andre, and Vincent. And Lonnie, Brian, Joseph, and Tomas. And then we also have John W. from the UK, Jim S. from California, and Marianne R. from Australia to thank for their donations. And so thanks, everyone. Tracy and I are grateful for your support and encouragement. And then just a reminder that the music y'all hear at the beginning and end of every episode is from the song Midnight on the Water by Spiritwood Music, and we use it with their permission. And last but not least, thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. We'll be back next week with the conclusion of the Battle of Pea Ridge. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.